Well, now, please open your copy of God's Word as we return to our studies in Numbers. Today, Numbers chapter 16. I want to say that I'm so thankful for a few weeks uh, that the session of Redeemer and the deacons have allowed me to be out of the pulpit uh, to focus on helping our family settle in with a newborn baby. Uh, I'm not done with my weeks out, but uh, I'm going to be spacing out a few more of them. Uh, And as nice as it is to have some time out of the pulpit, it's also good to be opening God's Word again with you today. We are returning to Numbers in chapter 16. This is another long passage, so we'll get right to it, but I will tell you uh, that in this passage, make sure that you're not paying attention to the wrong thing. Uh, There is such a spectacular evidence of God's judgment in this passage uh, that it looms large in our imaginations as we read the Old Testament, and we can clearly or we can easily be drawn away from uh, from what is primary. What is primary is not this wonderful miracle of judgment where the earth opened up and swallowed uh, Dathan and Abiram, but rather God's call to holiness to his people. You'll notice that as we go through, if you pay attention to the language of being drawn near or being separated. Several times Moses speaks of the Lord drawing near those whom he has chosen, and several times the Lord calls people to separate themselves, and that's what holiness is. It's being separated from the world to be drawn near to God. And so as you hear these things, pay attention to that language of being separated and being brought near to the Lord. Today, Numbers chapter 16 Before we read this word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and Father, give us wisdom by your Holy Spirit to understand the things of your word. We confess that apart from your work, we can gain nothing from this reading and this study. But you are able to make all of your grace abound to your people so that we might know you more and become followers and believers in you. Would you make that so for your people today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and to all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. 
What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron, tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also, and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they're visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men, who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar. 
to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer. And put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the plague was stopped. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, Grace Slick, that's her name. Uh, Grace Slick was the lead singer for the 60s band Jefferson Airplane. Uh, She once claimed that man is the only animal who knows that he's going to die. Upon further reflection, that seems to maybe not be the case, actually. 2015, the Journal of Animal Behavior published the findings of a research study. It showed up in an article that they titled, Wild American Crows Gather Around Their Dead to Learn About Danger. Uh, the, The experiment behind the article had to do with this very peculiar habit that crows have in the wild Uh, of holding what some people have started calling bird funerals. You see, most animals uh, in the wild, when they're exposed to the body of a fellow member of their species, will avoid that dead body altogether. So rabbits run away at the sight of a dead rabbit. Uh, Yellow jackets clear their nest of dead yellow jackets as soon as they find them, but not crows. When crows encounter a dead crow, they gather around. They send out warning calls. They begin to mob the area where their compatriots have fallen. And through a series of tests, you can read about it on your own time, uh, the researchers who were studying this behavior came to the conclusion that when crows do this, they're making connections. They're observing threats at the scene of the crime, as it were. They're teaching one another to avoid predators, to avoid situations that might be a danger to them someday. So then if crows don't know that they're going to die, they at least go out of their way to try not to. And that brings us back to Numbers chapter 16. That's because here again, in the sin of God's people, we find fools rushing in where even animals fear to tread. Numbers 16 presents us with the latest in a growing list of grumbling rebellions against the Lord in the wilderness. The people of God have again grown tired of Yahweh's leadership. They are unsatisfied with what God has given them. They have rejected the shepherds that God has placed over them. 
And so one more time, they gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And it all happens with a very predictable result. Today's text tells a true story that takes place over a three-day period. On day one, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram launch a sinful rebellion against the Lord. On day two, God's judgment reveals the leaders that he's chosen. And on day three, God's priest made atonement for the people. I can't imagine a better outline than the one that the Lord has given us, so we're going to look at it in that way. Three points covering three days. A day of sin, a day of judgment, a day of atonement. Begin with this day of sin. Numbers 16 opens by introducing us to a coalition of complainers. 254 of them, to be exact, all disgruntled wanderers, upset with where their journey with the Lord has brought them thus far. There is Korah, of course, and the text seems to treat him something like the ringleader of this rebellion. Korah is a Levite. He's of that privileged tribe, the Kohathites, that we'll hear about more later. But alongside him are three Reubenites from a different clan. There's Dathan and Abiram, and there's a man named On whose name shows up at the beginning and not again in this chapter. And then there are the 250 other influential men pulled from every tribe in the nation. Verse 3 says that all these men assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they did so to charge them with usurping authority for themselves that they had no right to claim. Now that opening background tells us something important about the sin that we encounter in this chapter. Namely, it tells us that this sin was intentional. This sin was calculated. It was planned out. You know, some of the earlier rebellions in the other chapters and numbers, if you're not careful, they could almost be filed under what we sometimes call uh, crimes of passion. They're just caught up in the moment, it seems, and, and a rebellion bursts forth. Chapter 11, the people's bellies are aching until they can't stand it anymore. They all cry out against the Lord out of hunger and exhaustion. Today, we call that being hangry, right? And if you've ever skipped lunch and then said something that you regret later, you almost feel sorry for them. You know what they were thinking, at least. And then in chapter 14, the hopes of the nation have just been dashed on the report of 10 of these spies that have come back from searching out the land. Forty days the people waited with anticipation, longing to hear about this fertile land full of blessing that God was bringing them. And then 10 of these men came back and said, you know, there are giants in the land and they're going to gobble you up if you go in there. And in an instant, their hope turns to despair and their despair turns to mutiny. And if you're reading those earlier chapters charitably, you can almost understand it. You can almost feel the angst and the anxiety that became the sin of the people. But when you read chapter 16, that is not the case. We must admit that this is nothing other than a power play. Calculated rebellion. You know, sin sometimes works that way, and it's good for us to understand the different ways that sin shows up in our lives. Sometimes our sin is reactive. It comes on so suddenly that it, that it even surprises the sinner himself. Other times, our sin is deliberate. 
Other times we know it's there and we refuse to, to push away that sinful thought, that temptation. We let it just sit and bubble under the surface quietly. We let it whisper its rationalizations in our ears until we find that perfect moment that we think we might actually get away with this. Well, that was the case with Korah's rebellion. This was a sin that had time to spread among the clans. From one plotting heart to another plotting heart, the leaders have organized their rebellion until they have worked up the courage to deny the Lord to his face. That's not what they thought they were doing, of course. If you had asked them, uh, men, what's your problem? Who is your problem with? I doubt they would have said, you know, we really have a problem with the Lord Yahweh. Instead, they would say, no, our problem is with Moses. Our problem is with Aaron. Haven't those men gotten a little too important for their own good? Hasn't their leadership denied something good that the people ought to have by now? Notice the complaints that showed up on this day of sin. There were two of them, and the first one belongs primarily to Korah. It comes in verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. They said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Do you hear the accusation in that statement? The accusation is that these leaders have grown too big for their britches. They're a little too self-important. They're beginning to stand in the way of all the good things that God meant to give to his people. These leaders are becoming an obstacle. Specifically, they believe that these leaders are an obstacle to the access that they felt everyone in the camp ought to have to the Lord. Korah and his followers are claiming that every Israelite had a right to approach the Lord on his own merits. Without the mediation of the priesthood. They were claiming that every Israelite was holy enough to share space with the living God. Now, as you consider that claim, it's worth noting that that is a classic case of a good doctrine badly applied. The premise of their statement actually is true. Israel is holy. That's what God had said. He, he said that his nation was holy. He called them a kingdom of priests. And even after all of their sins, that pillar of cloud is still there in their midst, reminding them that the Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. So it's true at least on one level, that because God has made this people his, every member of the congregation is holy. They're set apart. And in a sense, every Israelite is already near to the Lord. And yet, Korah and his company are ignoring very important distinctions. Distinctions that the Lord has made between his people and among the people. In fact, you could go back and, and read the opening chapters of Numbers again this afternoon. That was the point of the census in the beginning. That was the entire point of the arrangement of the camp, the first four chapters of the book. And the Lord placed the Levites by their clans around the tabernacle of testimony as a sort of buffer between God's holiness and this chosen yet still sinful people. Chapter 1, verse 53, all the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard of the tabernacle. So, yes, Israel is God's people, 
And yet, access to the Lord comes only through the priesthood. No one can come near to God without coming through the mediator that he has chosen and provided for himself. So Korah is claiming that Moses and Aaron, they're standing in the way of the access that everyone ought to have to God's presence. Dathan and Abiram are claiming that Moses is withholding the blessings that the people ought to have received by now. Look at verse 13. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields or vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? That last phrase there means something like, will you pull the wool over the eyes of these men? We see what you're doing. Their claim is that you can't fool us anymore. Moses, we know that you're nothing but a tyrant. We know that you never had anything good in in store for God's people. We know that you're just leading us on this circular journey through the wilderness for your own self-importance, for your own enjoyment. And they felt that if they could only get rid of this unnecessary shepherd, then God's sheep, they could finally enjoy the good pasture that God had prepared for them. It was an arrogant accusation. Perhaps they had forgotten that the whole reason they couldn't go into the promised land was because of their own sin of unbelief in the first place. Perhaps they had forgotten that, in fact, it was Moses' intercession in chapter 14 that kept the entire nation from being consumed by the wrath of God. Perhaps they had forgotten how bad things were in Egypt. That's what that phrase means in the beginning. They look back to those good old days and they now begin to remember the land of slavery by that title given to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It seems to increase, doesn't it? Earlier in Numbers they said we had leeks, we had cucumbers. Now they're saying we had richness and sweetness. Oh, if we could only get back to Egypt. If we could only get rid of this Moses. You can hear their accusation. They're saying that this man stands in the way of the good things that we ought to have received by now. This Moses is an obstacle to our enjoyment of God's promises. Now, if we're hearing those accusations accurately, I think we're also going to begin to discern a common sin between Korah's claim and the claim of Dathan and Abiram. The common sin between them both is the sin of discontentment. It is a sinful dissatisfaction with what the Lord has given his people. Moses' response in verse 9 makes that clear. He says, Is it too small a thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and minister to them? Verse 10, And would you seek the priesthood also? What is Moses putting his finger on? He's pointing out the fact that despite Korah's democratic spin that he's put on all of this, Korah doesn't actually want equal access for everyone in Israel. He wants a little bit more for himself. And think about that. The Lord has already blessed him. 
The Lord has called him and he's called his brothers, the Kohathites, to have charge over the most holy articles in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant and the Table of the Presence and the Lampstand and all of those gold-plated articles from inside. The Lord has placed the Levites as a protection for all of the nation. The Lord has a purpose. He has a great plan for their ministry among the nations. But Korah wants more. He is unsatisfied with what God has given him. Ian Duguid says that just like the pigs in George Orwell's animal farm, Korah wanted a society in which all the animals are equal. Oh, he still felt he was a little more equal than some others. Oh, here was Korah's problem. He was sinfully dissatisfied with God's plan for his life. And he was saying to himself something like, I deserve more than where God has placed me. And Dathan and Abiram are doing something similar. They're saying God is treating us harshly. We don't want this leader over us. We deserve better than what God has given us. In the end, Moses' response to Korah applies to the entire people. He says, it is against the Lord that you and your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? A tool in the hands of the Lord, but you gather yourself against the Lord. Dear friends, we also need to know that this is the way our sin works. Sin makes us distrustful of God's provision for us. Sin makes us believe that God does not have our best interest in mind. Sin makes us assume that his blessings are really obstacles that his shepherds are really tyrants, that his promises are really limitations. Unbelief in the Lord makes us arrogantly assume that we deserve more or better or other than what God has determined to give us in Christ Jesus. And when we take sin like that to its logical conclusions, it leads us all the way to rejecting the way of life that the Lord has appointed so that we can pursue the good things that we think we deserve. You know, our Lord told a parable to the same effect in Matthew chapter 21. Perhaps you remember that Jesus uh, spoke there in Matthew chapter 21 about uh, tenant farmers. And they tried to gain an inheritance for themselves by rejecting the son who ruled over his father's estate. In Numbers chapter 16, the same principle is in play. In the day of sin, here in the wilderness, these rebels are saying, come, let us get rid of these leaders, and then the inheritance will be ours. Then we'll have everything we always wanted. So here's the lesson we learn from the day of sin. Excuse me. The lesson is that discontentment is the heart of rebellion. Now, in response, Moses declares that there is going to be a day of judgment. My voice is clearly out of practice. This is what I get for taking a few weeks off. Uh, Here's how you know that Moses is a faithful shepherd of God's people. You know that Moses is a faithful shepherd because he speaks a word of mercy even in the face of rebellion. A word of mercy shows up in verse 5. Moses said to Korah and to all his company, in the morning. As in, not yet. As in, not immediately. There's judgment coming, but 
but not quite yet. In the morning, says Moses. And then that merciful word shows up again in verse 7, in verse 16. There the word is tomorrow. It's a very gracious allowance. Sleep on it, Moses is saying. It's a very gracious allowance, especially when you consider that in verse 21, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, and here's what he says. Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. The Lord doesn't need 24 hours. The Lord doesn't need a tomorrow or a second day in which to execute his judgments. His wrath could have fallen in a single moment, and if it had, it would have been true and right and just. The Lord doesn't need time for his judgment to settle. But instead, Moses calls for a delay so that these rebels might have time to reconsider. Perhaps so that they would have time to repent. And the giveaway that that's what's going on comes in Moses' challenge in verse 6. Read it again. Do this, he says. Take censers, Korah, and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses will be the Holy One. Now that word translated censer shows up here. It's a common word in connection with the Old Testament worship. It referred to a a small bronze or maybe a, a gold silver plate, kind of like a shallow bowl. It would have had steep sides, probably a a small handle. Uh, They were actually common elements in every household, which is why 250 men later can come up with their own censers. Uh, And most often, our English translations call these things something like a fire pan. There are no matches, right? There are no no, uh, lighters in this day. And so every household would have had these things in order to receive ashes or in order to carry coals from one place to another to light another fire. This is a very important thing. Now, there are three places in the Old Testament and three places only that these censers are connected with the burning of incense. One place is here, Numbers chapter 16. Another place is in Leviticus chapter 16. That's where the Lord gives regulations concerning the Day of Atonement. And there, Aaron, the high priest, is told to take fire from off the altar of sacrifice and to lay incense on it and to use it as part of the ritual for making atonement for the people every year on Yom Kippur. And the third place that these censers show up in connection with incense is in Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, where we hear the story of Nadab and Abihu, legitimate priests, sons of Aaron, who take their censers and take fire that God has not commanded and lay incense on them. And Leviticus chapter 10 verse 2 says, When they did, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, if you understand the history of God's people in the wilderness, you know what Moses is saying. He is warning Korah to take seriously the claims that he's making. Consider, he's saying, whether you really think you are holy enough to come into God's presence on your own. Take a day to think it over, because tomorrow God's judgment is coming. And when God's judgment falls in this passage, it does three specific things. The first thing God's judgment does in this passage is that it reveals who God has chosen to bring near. That was the main point of Moses' challenge in verse 5. The Lord said uh, in the morning, Moses said in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. And he will bring him near to him. And the one whom he chooses, he will bring near. 
Now, this might sound like a vindication of Aaron, but actually this is a vindication of the Lord. Because Korah and his company, they said, we can come into God's presence on our own. We can simply claim it. We have a right to come near. Then Moses is saying, no, the choice is the Lord's. Access to God's presence is not like riding shotgun, right? You, you don't get it just because you call dibs and then everybody else has to say, well, okay, it's yours, you can have it. No, the Lord gets to choose and access to his presence comes through his gracious condescension. Access to the Lord comes through a merciful welcome and through a sacrificial offering that he promises to accept. And this text is reminding us that God alone decides who can come near through atonement. It's the first thing it does. God's judgment reveals who he has chosen. Secondly, God's judgment warns those who trust in themselves. Here's the lesson in the judgment that fell on Dathan and Abiram. Remember that they thought they would be better off without the leadership of Moses. They didn't need God's shepherd to lead them. They didn't need God's prophet to teach them. So they believed they were sufficient in themselves to find their own way to God's promises. So before the judgment of God fell on their families, Moses interpreted the sign and what it would mean. Look again, verses 28 to 30. Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, and here's the important part, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Again, this is not a vindication of Moses. This text is not here to make us think more highly of Moses. This text is here to make us think more highly of God. You may remember that Moses never wanted to lead this people in the first place. When the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush in the wilderness in Midian, and he sent him to speak to Pharaoh, and Moses said, please anybody else, literally anybody but me. I don't want to go. I don't want to lead them. I'm not strong enough or smart enough or eloquent enough to go down and to speak to Pharaoh. Please would you send somebody else? And the Lord said, but I will be with you. What's the point of God calling Moses? The point is to convince us that the Lord makes a way where there is no way. The Lord gives strength where there is no strength. God can call a stuttering, rejected prince out of the wilderness of Midian and send him down to Egypt to lead a people out of slavery and into the promised land. The Lord can do that. The Lord can take the runt of the litter, a ruddy young shepherd boy, out of the wilds of Bethlehem and make him the greatest warrior king that Israel has ever known. The Lord can do that. The Lord can come to earth in a virgin's womb. He can come to age in a carpenter's household. He can hail from the backwoods of Nazareth of all places and through his overlooked and forgotten, rejected son, he can lead his people into salvation. The Lord can do that. He is the God that we can trust in. But all those who, like Dathan and Abiram, trust in themselves will face judgment. So Numbers 
Chapter 16, verse 31, as soon as Moses finished speaking all these words, the ground under Dathan and Abiram split apart. Verse 33, they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. The earth closed over them and they were gone. That's what the strength of man really is in the end, you know. It's a blip on the radar that never shows up again. It is a flower that blooms and withers in a single season and leaves no trace. And the judgment that befell Dathan and Abiram is the judgment that awaits everyone who trusts in themselves and not in the Lord. They perished from the midst of the assembly. That leads us to the third thing that God's judgment does in this passage. It reveals those he's chosen. It warns those who trust in themselves. And finally, it foreshadows the final separation of hell. This text goes on to teach us that the people were terrified when they saw what happened with Dathan and Abiram. And while they were terrified, fire came out from the Lord and consumed those 250 men offering incense. That language, by the way, is an almost exact repetition from Leviticus chapter 10 concerning Nadab and Abihu. But then in verse 36, the Lord commands Eliezer to go through the fire and into the ashes and to gather up the censers out of the ashes and to make them into a covering for the altar of the Lord. Probably they were made into several coverings. It was a sort of consumable good. You had an altar of sacrifice made out of acacia wood. You had to cover it with something metal so that it wouldn't burn up. So you had these bronze coverings, and when one wore out, you'd replace it with another one. The Lord is saying, gather up all of these items that have been offered that have now become holy and make them a perpetual sign before the people. Hammer out a whole stack of them. So when you need another one, they're there. And people will say, where'd you get that? And they say, oh, that came from the affair with Korah. That's where that's from. And the Lord is telling them, as often as you go to the fires of sacrifice, you should have a sign before your eyes to remind you that all who trust in their own righteousness will be separated from the Lord, just like Korah and his company. And again, our Lord Jesus Christ takes up the same theme in the New Testament. Jesus said that on the great day of judgment, there will be a separation. There will be a division between the sheep and the goats. And some will be brought into salvation and others will be sent away. Matthew chapter 7 verse 22. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we not cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? In other words, look how good we are. Look how strong we are. We've done all these great things. Doesn't that get us something? And then I will declare to them, says Christ, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No wonder Moses warned these men of the day that was coming in the morning. In the morning was the beginning of eternity for these men. Tomorrow was the start of God's judgment for these men. And you don't know when your tomorrow will come. You don't know when the morning will find you. But the Lord is still warning you. There is a day of sin now and there's a day of judgment coming. And on that day, all those who trust in themselves, all those who reject 
his priest, his prophet, his king, on that day, all those who trust in themselves will be separated from God's blessing forever. There's a day of sin. There's a day of judgment. Finally, the chapter tells us about a day of atonement. Now, in verse 41, we find that the sin of distrusting the Lord has become so pervasive among the nation of Israel that their entire world is turned upside down. Just like Isaiah said, they're calling light darkness and darkness light. You remember that Dathan and Abiram called Egypt by that, uh, that phrase most commonly used to refer to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, now the people gather on the very next day after judgment fell, and they complain to Moses and Aaron that they have, quote, killed the people of the Lord. Remember what the Lord said, get away from these wicked people. Lest you be swept away in their sins. And now they come the next day and they say, these are the people of the Lord. These are the holy ones. These are the ones who now have become martyrs in their minds. And Moses and Aaron are the enemy. And now, as a consequence, for the second time in two days, the Lord declares that there will be no tomorrow for the nation of Israel. He says he's going to consume them in a moment. It's almost enough to make you wonder why Moses hasn't given up yet. Right? I mean, Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf. And Numbers chapter 14 with the rebellion after the spies. And Numbers chapter 16 with Korah's rebellion and now the rebellion of the people. Over and over again, he just keeps throwing himself on his face. He just keeps bowing down and putting himself between the indignation of a righteous God and the sin of a dying people. And here are are a people who clearly seem not to want the good things that God has given them. They've been freed from slavery in Egypt, but their hearts are still bound by sin. And it makes you wonder why Moses hasn't just thrown up his hands and said, I'm done, we're finished, you can have them. Wipe them out, let's start all over again, we'll see if we can get something better next time. Actually, that's what God suggested he would do in Exodus chapter 32. I'll start all over again with you, Moses. Why didn't he take the chance? Instead, almost inconceivably, Moses and Aaron trust that there is still a solution for this sin-hardened people. Notice the details in verse 46 and verse 48. Verse 46, Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. That mention of the altar is not incidental. Remember the only other text that speaks well of fire and censers and incense before the Lord. It's a day of atonement. And fire was to be taken from the altar of sacrifice. And it was to be a reminder that actually atonement's not made through incense. Not just through ritual. It's made through blood sacrifice. And so Aaron carries those smoking coals into the congregation of the people. And it was as though he was asking the Lord not to look at their sin but rather to consider the blood that pointed forward like all the sacrifices did, pointed forward to that perfect sacrifice that would one day be offered on Calvary. Secondly, verse 48, notice that Aaron stood with the fire, it says, between the dead and the living. Actually, in a way, that's where Aaron's entire ministry was played out. That was always Aaron's position among the people. He stayed between the living and the dead. 
Remember that the book of Numbers commanded Aaron and his sons to pitch their tents at the entrance of the tabernacle. They were to live as mediators between the living God and a dying humanity, between the holiness of the Lord and the rest of the nation. So when Aaron goes out among the congregation and he stands between the dead and the living, he's just acting out where all of his ministry is worked out. But he's doing it in a very personally costly way. You realize that? That's because when he rushes with the incense into the plague of God's judgment, Aaron did what no high priest was ever supposed to do. He contracted the uncleanness of the people he was ministering to. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not go in to touch any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, not even for his father or his mother. It's verboten. It shall not be done. Even the high priest of Israel shall not contract the uncleanness of the people. And normally in the day-to-day ministry that would have held true. But here's a crisis of judgment. Here's a plague of death spreading among the people of God, and the only way to avert this judgment is for the high priest to leave his place of consecrated honor and to be numbered among the dead who are falling all around him. And so for the sake of the people, Aaron took their uncleanness upon himself. So when the judgment of God reached the place where he stood, the plague stopped. This is one of the most touching pictures in the book of Numbers of the costly work that our great high priest has fulfilled on behalf of his people. Remember that Christ the Lord came down and dwelt among us. And while we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, he stooped low. He left the place of glory and honor. He took on the shame of our humanity and of our sin. Isaiah says he was numbered among the transgressors. He says that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And Paul tells us that through that sacrificial offering, he has brought near those who were far off. He's given them peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 says that through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Dear friends, this is where number 16 is pushing us. It's true that there's a warning here. For for those who will hear it, there's a call to watch out for the deceitfulness of sin. There's a declaration that the day of judgment is coming. But much more, what we find here is a reminder that we have a great high priest. One who has given himself to make atonement for all who trust in him. And if he is your Lord, he stands between you and God's judgment. Between the dead and the living. He leads you to his Father. He gives you access to the Lord through his Spirit. Have you ever wondered why God listens to your prayers? Have you ever wondered why you can call out and have any confidence at all that you're not just talking to the wall around you? It's because he gives us access to the Father through his Spirit. It comes through his atoning work, through his priestly mediation. It's his gift that he gives to us. And if he is your Lord, that is yours today. Access to the Father through his Spirit. And if he is not your Lord today, he can be. He can be. Repent 
and believe in the good work that he has done, and he too will give you access through his spirit. Let's come together in the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this book of Numbers and the riches that we are able to mine. We pray that you would help us to understand its message. It's not just about Aaron and Moses, but a greater Aaron, a greater Moses, a great high priest who makes atonement for all God's people. Help us, O Lord, to trust in him. Help us to rejoice in the work that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.